All right, y'all. So, hey, I'm going to cut you off because we're doing something a little different. I know, I know, you're all, I know, you're, you're very accustomed. You're habituated to a certain thing, but I'm, I'm trying to get your attention because we're doing something a little different this fall. Um, we are going to have people reading the scriptures for us, which means that this juncture, I'm going to ask you to stand up. I was trying to get your attention, I know. We often ask you if you are able to stand to honor the reading of God's word. And so we're going to be in Colossians 1. If you have your Bible, feel free to open it there. But this is my friend Kelly, and she is going to read the scriptures for us. Okay. Um, before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your word. Open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. That as we hear the scriptures read and your word proclaimed, Lord, that we would receive what you have to say to us with joy. Amen. Right. Our reading today comes from Colossians 1, 9 to 14. So listen to God's word. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kelly. You may return to your seats. Well, my name is Benji. I serve as one of the pastors here. And um, wow, that's literally the first time all day anybody's done that for me. So Ken gets it all the time, um, which is fine. I'm, I'm good with that. Um, Hey, we've already heard all kinds of good news here this morning. We heard about what went on at Santa Barbara Sending. We heard about the special offering for the poor, that through your generosity and God's provision, we were able to give. Um, I've got more good news, though. For one, our UCSB students are back. Yeah, gauchos. I'm really excited. Um, I know most of y'all are over there, so I turned that way. But um, Gauchos, so excited you're here. Um, but I have to say, as exciting as it is to have the Gauchos back, perhaps the most significant piece of good news socially of the last couple weeks, crumble cookies opened in Goleta. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Have you, have you braved the line yet, any of you? Yeah? Yeah, um, my family did. It, if you already have, you already know um, these aren't really typical cookies. They're pretty unique from the flavors to the amount of frosting, the sheer volume of frosting is significant. But perhaps the most notable feature of these cookies is that while technically each one is a single cookie, in reality, it's a bit more like a whole dessert all on its own. Uh, my family, like I said, we got some. There were knives and portion control involved because these things are massive 
They're really dense, and they're packed with flavor, kind of like our passage in Colossians today. I did it. I just went for it. I don't even care. I don't even care. So here's the thing. I'm not joking, because when Mike and I charted this um, series out, I remember we talked about, like, uh, that's a pretty brief, like, selection. Those, yeah, it's just six verses. I probably left two full sermons on the proverbial cutting room floor this week, because this is just dense, y'all. There's a ton here, and I'm super excited to get into it. So last week, one of our founding pastors, Steve Jolly, he got us going in this wonderful letter to the ancient church in the city of Colossae, and he showed us that the markers of a true Christian life are faith in Christ, love for the people of God, and hope in the promises of God. So just to remind us, Colossae was situated in modern-day Turkey. And so if you would read the book of Acts, you would see that there's a man named the Apostle Paul, and he goes on three different missionary journeys. He's traveling around the Mediterranean world. He's visiting cities. He's telling people about Jesus. He's establishing churches. And so in the back of many of our Bibles are some often things that look like this. I know you can't see it super well, but that's a map of Paul's missionary journeys. And if you were to look in the back of your Bible, or if you could actually see this very well, you would notice lots of familiar sounding cities, places like Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi, even Athens and Rome. But no matter how hard you looked, you would not find a a dot for Colossae, because this is a city that Paul never personally visited. But notice, if you have your Bible open, in the very beginning of this chapter, in verse 2, the distance doesn't prevent Paul from treating these believers like family. Verse 2, he calls them the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we've noted before that Paul's letters are just littered with family language. In fact, some scholars believe that family is the most common metaphor used in the New Testament to describe the church. And I want to ask us, out of what we just heard read from Kelly, how does Paul respond to his spiritual family in Colossae? Well, would you look at verse 9? In verse 9, he insists, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Now, I know that that might land with many of us kind of as anticlimactic, a bit of a yawn, right? Some of us read that as little more than the first century equivalent of the prayer hands emoji or typing out thoughts and prayers on social media. And the problem is that for many of us, when we send that prayer hands emoji or we type thoughts and prayers, for many of us, that actually represents the extent of our engagement with the issue. And yet Paul makes this remarkable claim that he prays unceasingly. He says, we have not stopped praying for you, for his siblings in Colossae. Furthermore, there's a specificity to Paul's prayer that reveals something of what he has in mind for these believers. These prayers have a trajectory. Paul prays for the Colossians with some hashtag goals in mind. So I want to take a closer look at Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 12 to see what he's praying for his far-flung spiritual family. First, in verse 9, he says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. At the very heart of Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae, for the Colossian Christians, the very heart of his prayer is that they would have illumination. 
It's very similar, actually, to the prayer that Kelly just prayed for us before she read the scriptures, that God would fill them with knowledge of himself. Now, I know that many of us love to imagine ourselves as fully rational beings. We love to imagine ourselves as those who approach the world around us with a scientific method-like approach to all facts. We're very objective We evaluate the evidence, and we make logical decisions based on that search. And yet, the Bible tells us that when our original parents rebelled against God in Genesis 3, everything was affected, including our minds, including our rational faculties, including our ability to understand truth. So Paul describes this in his letter to the early Christians in Rome. He says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse And then he goes on to say, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor give thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And so to the Christians in Corinth then, Paul explains how God's saving work actually includes a revolution of the mind to be able to understand spiritual things. He says, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Simply put, Without the Spirit-initiated renewal of our minds, Scripture insists that we can't even begin to understand the Word of God, the ways of God, and the will of God. But here's a caution for any highly educated, cerebrally-oriented gathering of serious-about-the-Bible-Jesus people. I've heard that such things exist. Paul makes clear in his prayer for the Colossians, that heads stuffed with Bible facts is not his ultimate aim. So we have to read verses 9 and 10 together because they're intended to be read together. So they say, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Fam, that short phrase, so that, those might be the two most important words in this whole passage. Because they remind us that attention to the life of the mind must always result in being mindful about our lives. Some of the harshest criticism Jesus ever brought was for the religious leaders of first century Israel, whose lives were marked by pursuit of Bible knowledge that never transformed their hearts, never permeated their lives. And similarly, Paul's goal for the Colossians is not that they would win at Bible trivia, but that by the Spirit's illumination, they would increasingly look like God through their lives and live lives that are pleasing to him. 
And I believe that that is still the challenge before each of us. A couple of years ago, your Santa Barbara Community Church leadership was talking about how would we know if somebody is growing in their discipleship? We all collectively agreed, yeah, discipleship is the goal. That's what we're aiming at. But but what does that look like? And we worked really hard to come up with some answers. These aren't perfect answers, but these are our answers. And what we wanted to remind ourselves, and indeed one another, is that because of an encounter with the living God, maturing disciples increasingly demonstrate minds shaped by the word of God. And that is really important. And that's what Paul's praying here. I pray that you would be illuminated. And yet, you'll notice that minds shaped by the word of God Well, it's really a gateway to having lives holistically reflective of discipleship. So we we move beyond that, too, because of our minds shaped by the word of God. It also results in hearts that are shaped by the character of God, relationships shaped by the kingdom of God, and priorities shaped by the mission of God, so that we holistically are living lives that are worthy of God and pleasing to him. Friends, increased knowledge of God is a doorway It's an important doorway, and we can't get to a life of holistic discipleship without it, but it is a doorway to a life of increasing faithfulness to God in all areas of life. And so, in the rest of our passage, Paul gives some additional insight into what that looks like. Verses 10 through 12, he offers up four descriptors of a life that is worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him in every way. So I want to briefly look at each of them. First, he says that a worthy and pleasing life bears fruit. Now, I know that for many of you, that is a very common metaphor. But if you're new to the Bible, if you are new to the story of God's redemptive work in the world, this could be kind of an odd metaphor. But throughout the Bible, the people of God are described with figurative language that would have resonated deeply in the agricultural setting of the original audiences. And so, for example, in Psalm 1, the righteous person, the faithful person is described this way. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, and whose life, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Jesus himself employed this metaphor, and he said, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And in one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, this same Apostle Paul, who we see writing to the Colossians, wrote to a group of believers known as the Galatians and described the work of God in their lives as the fruit of the Spirit. So here in Colossians then, Paul is simply reiterating a common biblical theme that a life that is worthy of and pleasing to the Lord is marked by bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing God-like evidence, increasing character that looks like God in every good work. And second, we see that a worthy and pleasing life grows in the knowledge of God. So we've already spent some time on this theme. We won't spend a lot on it here. But it's worth noting that we will never exhaust who God is. We will never reach the end of our growing in knowledge of God. I know our students are in here this week, and some of you may feel like you're just starting out in the shallow end of Bible reading and learning who Jesus is, and that's really great. I also want to assure you and remind you and maybe remind us all together 
that even the most seasoned Christian among us, the one who seems like they've got their spiritual swim cap and goggles and has perfected all the strokes of the Christian life, even that person is still being invited deeper and deeper into who God is. So N.T. Wright comments, and he says, verses 9 and 10 taken together form a miniature picture of Christian life and growth. The argument is not circular, as might at first appear, but spiral. Paul prays that they may increase in knowledge of God's will, with the result that the Colossians will live as God wants them to, and so increase in the knowledge of God. Understanding will fuel holiness. Holiness will deepen understanding. A worthy and pleasing life will continually hunger for more and more of who God is and who he reveals himself to be. A a worthy and pleasing life will always hunger for a deeper experience of God. Third, we see that a worthy and pleasing life endures by God's strength. Fam, can I shoot straight with you for a moment? Thank you. (laughs) Following Jesus is often really difficult. It's often really difficult. And I want to say anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. I've sometimes heard faith in Jesus described in ways that I think best fit in a late night infomercial with these over-the-top claims that seem impossible to deliver on. So rather than offering prosperity, comfort, and ease, Jesus actually declared, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Elsewhere, he promised his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus and the authors of the New Testament are clear and consistent that discipleship to Jesus is not the easy road in life, but it is always the truly good life, and it is always worth the climb. Paul insists that one of the signs of a worthy and pleasing life is great endurance and patience. Now, I recognize that may sound like finding out mid-race that what you thought was 110-meter hurdles is actually an ultramarathon, still with hurdles. (laughs) But there is good news in this passage, good news that is buried in grammar. Yeah. I know a few of you walked in today thinking, I hope whatever else happens, we get to talk about some Greek grammar. But here we are nonetheless... Let's do some participles. So participles, um, they're not the easiest concept to understand, and so I want to offer you a little help from ntgreek.org. That's NT means New Testament. It says this, a participle is considered a verbal adjective. It is often a word that ends with an I-N-G in English, such as speaking, having, or seeing. It can be used as an adjective in that it can modify a noun or substitute as a noun, or it can be used as an adverb and further explain or define the action of a verb. So much clearer, right? (laughs) The participle is kind of like the Swiss army knife of New Testament Greek. It can do all kinds of things depending on the need of the moment. And you are thinking, why in the world does this matter to my life in Colossians 1? Well, let me tell you. In our passage here, there is one main verb in verse 10, and it is this, live a life. It is translated live a life. This is the main verb. There are four participles that then describe what that looks like. The first participle is this, bearing fruit. You're like, yeah, we just talked about that. You're right, we did. Growing in knowledge. Mm -hmm. Talked about that too. In a moment, we're going to talk about giving joyful thanks. 
But before we get there, I want to talk about what it means that being strengthened is the participle. Now, this matters because some of us just heard in my brief aside about the road of following Jesus not being always easy. Some of us heard a call to dig deeper in ourselves. Some of us heard me saying, yeah, it's hard, so you better strap up and find those bootstraps and get to work. And that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying here is that part of living a life that is worthy and pleasing to God is to go to God to get what only he can give. This participle says that part of living a life that is worthy and pleasing to God is being strengthened because we don't have what we need. Friends, the patience and endurance that Paul highlights in this passage is a result of recognizing our neediness, our limitations, and taking them to the one who alone strengthens with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Great endurance and patience is the end result of being filled with power out of God's inexhaustible supply. So rather than a push to greater self-sufficiency, this is a call to greater honesty, to greater humility, the kind that drives us not into ourselves but into the arms of God so that we can experience the wonder of greater resources than we would ever find by looking within. Jesus described God as a father who gives good gifts to his children. And here in Colossians, Paul says that a life that patiently endures in the Christian faith can only be found, can only be found through humble reception of the power and strength that God alone has to give. And there's only really one proper response to such a wonderful gift, which brings us to the last element of Paul's description here, and that is a worthy and pleasing life joyfully gives thanks. Now, from the beginning of the chapter, Paul has given ample reason to be joyful, to give thanks. The gospel's taken root among the Colossians. It's spreading. They have the hope of heaven, new relationships with one another. They've been ministered to well. They've been filled with God's own spirit. They are growing in their knowledge of God. They are receiving directly from God everything they need to persevere in their Christian lives. There are so many reasons already for joyfully giving thanks. But in verses 12 through 14, Paul turns up the volume even more. And he lists three powerful reasons for overflowing gratitude. He says, we joyfully give thanks for qualification, for rescue, and for forgiveness. I told you there was good news. Friends, I don't know if there's even better news in this whole passage than this. God the Father rescues sinners and turns them into saints and heirs of his kingdom. I'm going to say that again because only one person said amen. God the Father rescues sinners and turns them into saints and heirs of his kingdom. It has often been said from this pulpit that Christianity is a rescue religion, and that truth is as clear in this passage as any other in the Bible. And we love stories of rescue, don't we? We're going to do a quick demographic age check. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about when I say baby Jessica. Yeah, my people, Gen Xers, boomers. So in 1987, an 18-month-old named Jessica, living in West Texas, fell into a well on her aunt's property. And the world was fixated. We, and honestly, like around the world, was, uh, all we talked about on the news, y'all, she was in there for 58 hours. That's a long time. 
Now, those of you that didn't just raise your hand, you're like, I don't know any baby Jessica. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, how about when I say Thai cave rescue? Yep. 2018, a soccer team was trapped in a cave for two weeks, and the world paid attention. We love stories of rescue. They capture our attention, but I got to tell you, friends, we don't always respond rightly to the magnitude of what Paul's saying here, that there is a cosmic rebellion that caused us to be alienated from God, and we needed rescuing, and God himself did it. Paul describes God's saving work here in three ways. He says he qualifies his children. He makes us able to be a part of his kingdom, something we couldn't do on our own. He rescues his children. He came to get us, and he forgives his children. He wipes our slate clean. Hear the good news. The God of the Bible is a God of pursuit who is so radically committed to showing love and extending grace and rescuing his wayward image bearers that he sent his own son to live a perfect life, not only as an example for us, but actually as our substitute, to do for us what we could never do on our own so that we could find forgiveness and become family. This God turns sinners into saints. He turns rebels into heirs with Christ, and he brings the lost out of darkness into a kingdom that is marked by peace, joy, and righteousness, and I can think of no better fuel for our joyful gratitude than that story. So one of the things I want us to remember this fall, as we work our way through this letter to the Colossians, this is a letter to a group of people. Now, we live in a very individualistic world, and it's easy to miss this. And I want to say, while it's always worthwhile to use the scriptures to do some personal check-in and self-inventory, I've actually provided some examples of that in the last few minutes, as we make our way through this letter this fall, we have to work really hard to fight the hyper-individualism that is the world in which we live and move and have our being every day. Friends, this letter isn't addressed to Jim, that one Colossian or Lorena, the believer over in Colossae. No, it's addressed to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, which means that most of the, of the yous are actually y'alls, and most of the encouragements, challenges, or instructions are actually for the whole church. So I have two of them for us, two challenges for us corporately that arise out of this passage. First, are we committed to seeing our own spiritual family grow in the same way that Paul longed to see the Colossians grow. We have to remember, Paul had never met these people. He said, from the day I heard about you, that was the extent. He said, I haven't stopped praying for you. And I want to say, as we rightfully pursue being relentlessly relational with each other, sometimes we are tempted to pit being joyfully faithful against being relentlessly relational. I have to say that spiritual family needs both. What might we learn from Paul's example with the Colossians? What might we learn and how might we grow in our commitment to one another, not just as and where we are now, but where it is that Jesus might be calling us? What would it look like to increasingly become a welcoming and far-flung family, a family that pushes one another to greater faithfulness to Jesus? to bearing fruit that looks like Jesus and shows evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives, to growing in our knowledge of God, refusing to settle in the shallow end, to leaning into the Spirit and allowing God to supply our lack of power as we endure hardship, 
to reminding one another of all the reasons we have for joyful gratitude in an age marked by cynicism. If we are ever to become fully ourselves, reach the fullness of who God created us to be together, we need one another. Paul's care for the Colossians he'd never met is a really high calling for us as we think about the believers we sit around week by week. The second and most practical challenge I can imagine for each of us is to become more and more like Paul and dedicate ourselves to praying for this church family. Now, I know that there are some among us here today for whom prayer comes as naturally as breathing. And there are some who would say, yeah, I already pray without ceasing for this church family. First of all, thank you and keep it up. I have to tell you, I've never been such a person. I really wish I could stand in front of you and say differently, but that's not the case. Prayer remains, to this day, a difficult spiritual practice for me. It is one that I'm growing in far more slowly than I would prefer. But can I tell you that one of the greatest blessings and helps to my growth in prayer has been, well, to pray. (laughs) I want you to know that each week, some of your church gathers on Wednesday mornings at 6.45 to pray for our church, to pray for our community, and to pray for our world. Now, I know that in the past, when I've mentioned this very gathering, I often will say something like, I know not everyone can make it at that hour, and that's true. But I also want to say, if you are among the many who can make it at that hour, prioritize coming. Add your voice in your heart to the prayers that are offered up for this church and for our community and for our world. And if you, like I do, often feel like a prayer rookie, hear this. One of the best things for my prayer life has been to regularly put myself in places of corporate prayer where I can hear the prayers of other saints. I also know that Wednesday mornings is not the only time that God listens to the cries of his people. One of the greatest gifts we have is constant access to God. So I want to ask, what would it look like for us to more robustly lean into that access, to refuse to let our home group meeting end without spending time in prayer, to make sure our small groups dedicate time for prayer, to stop as soon as a friend shares a challenge or a need or even a praise and say, can I pray about that? If Paul could pray unceasingly for siblings he'd never met, I wonder what would happen in our midst if we would commit to do the same for those whose faces, stories, and needs we already know. Well, I told you, it's as dense as a crumble cookie. So we've covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time, and I want to give us a little quiet space for the next few moments to allow the Spirit to highlight for each of us individually and perhaps for us corporately what it is that we ought to give attention to out of this really rich passage In the quiet of our own hearts, let's spend the next few moments asking the Spirit of God to illuminate the Word of God.